The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello, I'm Natasha Furrows and this is Spectator Out Loud. Each week, we ask three of our writers to read their pieces from the magazine. On this week's episode, Katie Balls on what the Elgin Marbles row was really about. Lionel Shriver on feckless politicians when it comes to immigration. And Marcus Walker on multi-faith prayer rooms. First up, Katie Balls. The Elgin Marbles should leave this northern whiskey-drinking gilt culture and be displayed where they belong, in a country of bright sunshine and the landscape of Achilles. This view, articulated by Boris Johnson in 1986 when he was studying classics at Oxford, is not shared by Rishi Sunak. On Monday, the Prime Minister caused a diplomatic spat after he called off a meeting of Kyriakos, Mr Takis, his Greek counterpart, hours before it was scheduled to take place. The reason? Mr Takas gave an interview to the BBC in which he said that Elgin Marvels must be returned to Greece. The current situation, he added, of having some artefacts in London and the rest in Athens was akin to cutting the Mona Lisa in half. Although he was stating the long-held position of the Greek government, such comments, number 10 claims, broke an agreement between the two countries not to use the visit as a public campaign for returning the antiquities. Aides were anxious that the meeting did not turn into a repeat of Johnson's 2021 power with the Greek Prime Minister when all other topics during the visit were overshadowed by briefings about the Elgin Marbles. Sunak wanted to focus on boats and Gaza, but his zero-tolerance approach towards the mention of the marbles meant that nothing was discussed at all. He has a visceral reaction to people taking the piss out of Britain, explains an ally of the Prime Minister. The Greek Prime Minister refused a backroom meeting with Oliver Dowden, Sunak's deputy, citing his annoyance. His foreign minister went a little further, declaring that Sunak's reaction was unheard of, even Israel and Hamas communicate, he said. The Greek press fell behind their man, arguing that it's no coincidence the meeting was cancelled. While Mitsotakis was meeting Starmer, he was 20 points ahead. The Greek Prime Minister also has a public mandate for his position. A pledge to renew efforts for the return of the marbles were part of his successful re-election campaign. Sadly for Sunak, he has not enjoyed the same show of support in this country. A YouGov poll this week found only 15% of voters think the Elgin marbles should be kept in Britain. We wanted him to fight, but on boats, not antiquities, complains one Tory MP. Meanwhile, the Cameroons, minus their leader who is bound by collective responsibility in the Foreign Office, are on the offensive. Former Coalition-era Culture Minister Ed Vasey, who is chairman of the Parthenon Project, a Return the Marbles lobbying group, described Stunak's decision as odd and tied up to a certain extent in the traditional culture wars. But the row is significant because it points to the different outlooks the two parties hold when it comes to British institutions. These two positions could soon come to a head. Labour points to Starmer's comparatively warm relationship with the Greek Prime Minister as proof of Sunak's tetchiness. He's too thin-skinned to have tough conversations, says one Labour figure. But it's no coincidence that Labour's position on the Elgin marbles is more appealing to the Greek Prime Minister. 
Starmer would support a temporary loan of the sculptures to Greece if it was agreed between the British Museum and the Greek government. Sunak, however, doubts the wisdom of allowing the marbles to leave the British Museum for Greece, even temporarily. Would we ever get them back? asks the number 10 aide. Since George Osborne took over as the head of the British Museum two years ago, he has made little secret of his desire to solve the historic disagreement. Earlier this month at a museum trustee dinner in the gallery where the marbles are displayed, the former Chancellor said that too often we thought, let's keep quiet. If we don't talk about things that are difficult, then no one else will. And it hasn't worked. He went on to say he hoped to reach an agreement with Greece for some of the marbles to be seen in Athens. A deal could be months away. Returning the marbles permanently is not seen as a practical or desirable option, given that it would require the approval of the government and a change to the 1963 British Museum Act, which stops the museum from deaccessioning items in its collection. Some figures involved in the negotiations like the idea of a Persephone clause. Just as Persephone spends six months of the year in Hades, the collection could do half the year in Greece and half in Britain. The Osborne approach is intended to avoid the need for any changes in law. One idea is a mutual loan whereby the Acropolis Museum trades items to the British Museum for a limited time. Osborne has suggested this could be done without the Greeks needing to relinquish their claim over the marbles, but sending antiquities to a country that maintains a legal claim over them would inevitably run into complications. He is already drawing criticism from parts of the Tory party. He has always wanted to be in with the fashionable crowd, says a former colleague of Osborne's current mission. Labour's stance is that the Starmer government would not make any changes to the laws that govern museums, but support institutions that debate how objects came to be there. Two years ago, Glasgow Life became the first museum in the country to repatriate objects to India. Since then, Manchester Museum has completed a return of 174 objects to Australia, while London's Horniman Museum returned its Ben and Bronzes to Nigeria. When it comes to the Elgin marbles, Sunak's fear is that a precedent could be set for bending the British Museum Act. Trust Rishi to pick the culture wall that will have no appeal to the 2019 coalition, complains a critic within the Tory party. But while Sunak is known for his lowbrow taste, Jilly Cooper... Michael Bublé, Taylor Swift, repatriation is an issue that emanates him, according to AIDS. He worries that if the marbles are returned, even briefly, that creates a slippery slope for many other objects to leave the British Museum's collection. Senior Tories warn that if the principle was followed, it could lead to a world in which only Chinese artefacts could be shown in China, and so forth. Half of the museum would go, predicts one gloomy government figure. That was Katie Balls. Next, Lionel Shriver. I'm fascinated by the subject of immigration because I'm a sucker for moral complexity. For decades, too, I've been an immigrant myself, though I've played by the rules at some cost, and I've never been a burden on the state, to the contrary. Besides, I am by nature territorial. Even having perfectly agreeable house sitters in London during my summers in Brooklyn has been painful. And the first thing this Goldilocks has always done on returning home is expunge every reminder that bears have been sleeping in my bed and eating my porridge. That said, we're all territorial, hence the moral complexity. So I've developed an unhealthy addiction to reading comment threads after articles about immigration. I never comment myself. This is a spectator sport. Admittedly, people may be more likely to contribute opinions on immigration when they want less of it. 
Still, by now I must have read tens if not hundreds of thousands of online diatribes and laments by ordinary readers. My casual survey can't substitute for more scientific polling, but these are still individuals to be reckoned with. Their communities often transformed beyond recognition in a mere 25 years. Their views might count for something, or so you would think. Note that the same patterns crop up not only in the conservative Telegraph and Wall Street Journal, but among the lofty left-leaning subscribers to the New York Times. Generally more unvarnished than the decorously hedged articles to which they're attached, these threads universally radiate two emotions. One, rage. Two, impotence. In a 2023 Gallup poll, 72% of Americans wanted immigration kept at its present level or decreased. It is increasing, including known gotaways, but not unknown ones. During the Biden administration, more than 8 million foreigners have crossed into the U.S. by irregular means. In a 2023 unheard poll, 57% of Britons agreed that immigration levels are too high. Only 20% disagreed. Yet according to newly released ONS data, net legal immigration is hitting record levels, revised upwards to 745,000 from 606,000 for 2022 and 672,000 for this year, not yet revised upwards. That net gambit, too, is an intentional obfuscation of Britain's fast-forward ethnic makeover. Of the roughly 500,000 emigrants who left Britain last year, only about 200,000 were neither British nor EU citizens. Of the 1.2 million immigrants who settled here last year then, roughly a million were non-EU arrivals who on average extract more than they contribute to the state. American Democrats who want controlled borders have no one to vote for. It's either keep the welcome wagon rolling or resort to Trump, for most Democrats, an anathema. Britons who want to put the brakes on this extraordinary social experiment also have no one to vote for. In 2024, reform aren't likely to score a single MP. Protesting the Tories' sorry record on lowering immigration to the tens of thousands means settling for labor, which now opportunistically suggests it would reduce newcomers to 200,000 per year, but with no feasible plan for how. Voters in both countries who would slow the drastic reshaping of their societies are thus perfectly disenfranchised. Shedloads of cultural strangers have been imposed on their democracies, absent any consultation with the electorate. The combination of rage and impotence is combustible. While I never defend the wanton destruction of property last week in Dublin, the knee-jerk classification of the rioters as far-right amounted to stuffing all these protesters frantically into a black box labeled bad. 
The Garda Shikana's refusal to release the nationality of the man who triggered the unrest by stabbing a woman and three children has been worse than coy, try, contemptuous. Were the culprit a native-born Irishman, his nationality would have been released in a heartbeat. Rage combined with impotence must eventually have electoral consequences. And with nowhere else to go, voters head to the extremes. Geert Wilders' anti-Islamist party, having just topped the poll in the Netherlands, shocked European leaders, but didn't shock me. Half the population of Amsterdam isn't Dutch. If reducing immigration would be such a crowd pleaser, why have politicians kept the floodgates open? One contingent of those commenters believes the dilution of native populations is a conspiracy. Me? I blame fecklessness. When confronting millions and, perhaps in time, billions of people fiercely determined to seek a better life, deterring them from doing so is hard. Withdrawal from obstructive and outdated human rights agreements would look mean-spirited. The UK's Home Office is a fifth column, but you can't simply sack all those wet civil servants, can you? Fashionable idolization of diversity, anything but a strength, conveniently justifies passivity. In the US especially, the sheer numbers are overwhelming. The system cannot cope, and it's easier for the Border Patrol to pile migrants into buses to Chicago so at least they're out of officialdom's hair. Trump aside, most politicians, like most columnists, are loath to appear unfeeling or unpleasant. All told, no one in power seems to know how to stem the flow of immigration logistically or legally, even in the rare instances that they want to. And they'll all be out of power soon enough. So who cares? It's not only newspaper readers who feel impotent. Ask Suella Braverman. By 2100, Africa's population is almost certain to reach 4 billion, although that's assuming these folks stay in Africa. Reading the demographic tea leaves, I'm sometimes lulled into fatalism. I foresee a socially volatile future. You can repeatedly hammer into people that the word invasion is offensive, but you can't keep them from feeling invaded. Yet most Western populations are probably too complacent and too old to foment an effective popular rebellion over immigration before the reverse colonization of our countries is a done deal. Horse bolts, stable door shuts well thereafter. Unfortunately, such fatalism suits our feckless betters down to the ground. Could governments keep the influx to manageable and assimilable levels if they really, really tried? Yeah, probably. But it would be too expensive, too politically risky, and too much trouble. That was Lionel Shriver. And finally, Marcus Walker. When the Roman Emperor Justinian 
finished building the Hagia Sophia Church in Constantinople in 537. He compared it to the great temple in Jerusalem. Solomon, I have surpassed thee, he declared. Some 400 years later, as visiting ambassadors from Kiev were led into the same ethereal structure, they remarked, we did not know if we were in heaven or earth. There will be no such confusion when people enter the newly opened multi-faith area in the free waiting zone car park of Bristol Airport. To the casual observer, it looks like a bus stop with greyed-out perspex glass windows and walls that do not quite reach the ground, presumably to prevent the homeless finding somewhere dry to sleep. Located just off the Silver Zone roundabout, the multi-faith area provides customers with a private space to reflect and pray whilst waiting to collect friends, family or loved ones. This is almost the perfect metaphor for how our secular bureaucratic state today views religion and prayer. When St Hilda's College Oxford decided to replace its chapel with a multi-faith prayer room, its last Anglican chaplain commented, When it comes to decoration and iconography, a multi-faith room inevitably tends to be lowest common denominator, and therefore usually bland. Soulless, you might say. He went on to sell the pass. Much as we enjoy the colour and numinous atmosphere of, say, Exeter College Chapel, Christians can worship or pray in any space. Well, up to a point. Christians can worship God anywhere, and God is sometimes worshipped most deeply and powerfully in the most miserable of places, but that does not therefore mean this is the ideal way of worshipping. For all that the Church of England tried to tell people during the pandemic that they could worship God just as well from their sofa as in church, we are all rather glad that most people did not take us at our word now that we want them back. Beauty matters, and it matters across all religions. O oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, says Psalm 96, and we know that the Temple of Jerusalem, where it was first sung, was a building of outstanding beauty. This was not just the tradition of ancient Judaism, as, for example, the astonishing Chagall windows of the chapel in the Hadassah Hospital in Jerusalem demonstrate today. Justinian hoped to echo Solomon's temple in Hagia Sophia and created a work of magnificence which can still just be glimpsed today. Down the road, it is the Blue Mosque, one of dozens of Islamic artistic gems which dot Istanbul. Beauty means something to human beings and has meant something in every age of man. Not so for the officials behind the airport's prayer area, who seem contemptuous of religion and the need to pray. They seem to think we are all the same and that our mumbo-jumbo can be recited in any old box as so long as they've fulfilled their diversity, equity and inclusion objective of installing a multi-faith room somewhere on site. Box ticked. Box built. To be generous, there is some logic to the bare room. No religion now should take precedence, and once you start awarding space to some divisions, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, where does it stop? Does every cult get its own chapel? Every faction of Anglicanism? But it's the sheer arrogance of the thing that gets me. 
The you-get-what-you're-given attitude, even if it's a prefab bus shelter next to a roundabout in a free waiting zone. And why should some secularists be able breezily to decide which elements of the amorphous blob that we call religion are essential and which are not? It demonstrates a refusal to appreciate that how we worship God is an outworking of deep philosophical and theological conviction, not a fashion taste. The searing irony is that while the room is devoid of any iconography, partially in order to satisfy the demands of Wahhabi Islam, and it does have a Qibla pointing in the direction of Mecca, and rather attractive carpets, it is a room with walls that do not touch the floor. No thought has been given, of course, to the effect on carpets and kneeling worshippers of rainwater slopping under the prefabricated walls. But this is about tokenism, not facilitating worship or prayer. It is tokenism to create a space that would not offend Muslims while having no regard for how Muslims worship. It is tokenism to affect enough care for your religious customers to put up a prayer space in an airport but then shove it outside on a roundabout. And it is astonishingly arrogant to think that thousands of years of subtle philosophy of art and liturgy can be boiled down to a bare plastic hut in a parking lot. This car park capella is an icon of our age. It speaks of an officialdom that views religion as either a nuisance or a diversity target. It stands in miserable glory as a reflection of everything the secular state does and does not hold dear. Note as a final reflection that telling little word, free. That there is a free waiting area suggests that somewhere in Bristol Airport there is an unfree waiting area where a better class of traveller might lurk. The sort the airport presumes will be unlikely to feel the need for a multi-faith area. That was Marcus Walker. That's all for this week. If you enjoyed listening to the podcast, why not pick up a copy of our magazine? I'm Natasha Feroz, and do join us again next week. <laughs>